According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 22 is where we'll get started. Luke 22. We are beginning a new episode today. We're going to combine episode 20 and 21 into a single outline. Episode 20, Judas Revealed and Defects. And episode 21, Jesus Warns About Further Desertion. We'll handle them both with a single outline rather than break them up into two parts. Interesting that um, when you look at the overall harmony of the Gospels, as we've been in this study now forever, um, you can count on one hand the number of episodes that have been recorded by all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not many events are covered by every single one of the Gospels. You've got uh, the baptism at the River Jordan. You've got, the, uh, uh, you've got this event here. You've got the crucifixion. All right. Uh, but not many events are actually covered in all four. When you when you look down the, the columns in the Harmony of the Gospel handout, you'll you'll see the blanks in one or more of those four columns for any of the episodes that you're looking at. And so uh, this uh, is interesting that it is one that's covered by all four of the evangelists. And I think it notes the um, the impact that this had and and really the urgency that we ought to be learning from this in our own application. So. Uh, we'll spend some time with it. We'll understand the nature of betrayal. We'll understand the uh, the grace and the love that Jesus showed, even though he knew who the traitor was. He gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, to not do what it was that he'd planned to do, and uh, certainly showed a lot more uh, grace than I would have shown. Uh, if I if I had known who the traitor was and and had the power of uh, the power that Christ had, I, I don't, I'd turn him into a frog or something. I'd, <laughs> I'd teleport him to South America and, you know, uh, whatever it would take. But that's just uh, that's just me. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before the throne of grace this morning, thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the privilege we have to assemble together. Thankful, Father, for this Wednesday morning study. And uh, in a lot of ways, Father, it's my favorite study throughout the week. Uh, just ask for your hand of blessing as once again we return to the upper room. We see the uh, the love and the grace and the, the uh, blessings of our Savior. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, Luke 22, verses 21 through 23 are the verses that cover episode 20, Judas Revealed and Defects. You then have to skip down to verses 31 through 38 in order to move on into episode 21, Jesus Warns About Further Desertion. And um, let's look at that here, and then we'll harmonize them for you. Uh, Because this is where there's actually some variety among the different harmonies that you might happen to read. So uh, Luke 22:21. the first thing you spot is uh, that this verse does not actually start a paragraph. <laughs> All right, it starts with a but, but behold, uh, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. If 
For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And that's it. That's the shortest account that we have. Of all four of these, Luke's record is the shortest, being only three verses long. Also, Luke's record is not independent. That is, it's not separate. It's actually included as a part of the part of the communion message. And you'll notice, you know, in verse 20, uh, this uh, cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And in verses 14 through 20, you've got the, uh, or shall we say, um, yeah, 14 through 20, you've got the Lord's table there. You've got the institution of communion. And we're not there yet. That's, we don't have to get to that until uh, episode 22. All right. So in reading, the, in harmonizing these accounts, we recognize that they're not all clones of one another. They will put things in different order. They will put things in, in uh, with a different emphasis based upon um, the leading of the Holy Spirit as he inspires the scripture. So uh, just identify that as a difference. Now let's turn over to uh, Mark. Mark chapter 14. Verses 18 through 21. And uh, this is a paragraph that does stand on its own. It's not connected with uh, the Lord's table. It actually it precedes the Lord's table. So it says in verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Uh, Mark didn't tell you anything about foot washing. John's the only one that tells you about foot washing. Uh, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One who was eating with me. They began uh, to be grieved and, and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl or who dipped with me in the bowl. If you take that as a simple past tense for the son of man is to go just as has been written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. All right, and that's where that episode ends. There'll be a gap until you get to verse 27 through 31, where we will uh, proceed to handle episode 21, where Jesus warns about the further desertion. Um, Jesus says to them, you will fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And uh, he warns them. And of course, this is where Peter says, oh, no, Lord, I will never, uh, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Okay, and uh, so we're coming up on, Peter's uh, three uh, denials here very quickly. So that's Mark's record, all right? A little bit longer than Luke's. It's five verses instead of three verses. Uh, A few more words, actually, per verse. Uh, So uh, a little bit longer account. Matthew's is slightly longer still. And you'll notice, uh, just like Mark, Matthew will have this event before the uh, communion. And, uh, And I agree with that. I believe this event happens before the communion. Matthew 26. I believe Christ does not give communion to the 11 until number 12 is gone. And we'll talk about that. Communion, the unbeliever has no part in communion. All right, Matthew 26, verses 21 through 25. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Similar language to what we had recorded in Mark. Each one of them, one at a time, was making face-to-face denials. 
And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Again, you can take that as a simple past event. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then a detail Mark did not record. Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Now Mark recorded that each one of them was one by one saying, Not I, not I. Matthew actually records the verbal exchange between Judas and the Lord. Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. And then uh, from there, verse 26 takes us into the Lord's table. Verses 31 through 35 is when we'll skip down where Jesus uh, warns them about falling away. All right, so there's those accounts. Back to John 13 then. John 13, and this is where we have the fullest record. Now, Matthew is, again, five verses, same as Mark. Uh, A little bit wordier, though, longer uh, than Mark. But the longest account we have is the ten verses that are contained in John 13, verses 21 through 30. And not only is this the longest, but it also contains unique information, material that's not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And you would expect that. That's very much common with uh, John's gospel overall. So uh, Luke, I'm sorry, John 13:21. When Jesus had said this, uh, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, when Jesus had said this connects this statement with what preceded it there in John 13 and verse 20 about um, the, the, the doctrine that he was teaching them after the foot washing. Okay. So when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And so in addition to the the one-on-one denials where every single one of them came to him, you know, one at a time and said, Not I, will it? It's not I, will it? Okay. Um, In addition to that is this episode where they're looking around at one another. Luke told us that they began to confer with one another. Okay, so there's probably a total of three different activities. The looking around at one another at a loss, the talking with one another, and then the one-on-one approach to Jesus where one by one they came to him and said, it's not going to be me, is it? It's not going to be me, is it? All right. So we'll talk about that. This night is actually going longer than I think we ever give it credit for. Okay, there's more activity. They're not just, they don't just file into the room, sit down, say a few things, eat, get up and leave, okay? There's probably a lot of getting up, getting down, moving around, leaving the room, coming back into the room, all right, as the, uh, as the night unfolds. And I'll spell that out for you when we uh, give you the detail for what a, uh, a Seder feast is all about anyway. Now, um, so they're looking around at one another at a loss to know which one he, of which one he was speaking. So there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Okay, Luke didn't give us this. Mark didn't give us this. Matthew didn't give us this. Who gives us this? The disciple whom Jesus loved, right, who we believe to be the Apostle John himself. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, uh, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He doesn't say ask him what he's talking about. He gestures to John and says, you tell us who he's talking about. He assumes that John already knows. 
And, uh, but John doesn't know. So John leans back thus on Jesus' bosom and says to him, Lord, who is it? And then uh, Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall, future tense, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so we've got some distinctions that need to be drawn. And, uh, and Gina, we've got some uh, distinctions that need to be drawn. In a couple of the records, it is an aorist participle or a present participle. The, the dipping is something that was done in the past or something that's done presently. Uh, here, the dipping is something that's done future. Okay? There's also different in the language that's used between the accounts. In uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Jesus and Judas will dip their hands in together. But in John's record, uh, Jesus says that he's the one who does the dipping, okay, which is baptizing, okay, the, vec- the vocabulary of bapto and some things. Jesus is going to baptize the morsel, and then Jesus is going to give the morsel to the traitor. So it's not as if two hands are, are dipping. Uh, in John's record, Jesus does the dipping and gives the morsel to the traitor, and it's spoken of ahead of time. It's spoken of ahead of time. And so uh, as we reconcile these passages, we need to say, are they, is it the same event or are there two separate events? Was there a past event whereby both hands simultaneously dipped? And Jesus speaks of that. And then a prophecy where, or not a prophecy, but a, a, a clue, a, a heads up, when Jesus specifically warns John, watch this, I'm going to hand the morsel to the traitor. Okay, and I believe that's the best way to reconcile this. Actually, two separate events. One where you have two hands dipping and one where Jesus does the dipping and hands the morsel to Judas. So who is it, Lord? And uh, Jesus answered, that one is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So a split second later, does it say that? No. So five minutes later, doesn't say that. So 10 minutes later, so an hour later, at some point thereafter, we don't know how long, but when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And no other apostle saw it, only John saw it. And then after the morsel, A split second later, five minutes later, an hour later, we don't know. Okay, as I say, we can we can safely, very safely stretch this night out for a number of hours. You know, in the time that they were in that upper room until they departed and uh, much of what we call the upper room discourse from 14 through 17 was actually outdoors uh, once they left the upper room on their way to the garden, but we still call it the upper room regardless, uh, uh, upper room discourse nonetheless. All right, so after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. That's how we know he wasn't a believer, right? I mean, we know from other reasons, too, that he wasn't a believer. He said not all of you are clean, and uh, we know that, uh, that one of them is an unbeliever, and here is Satan directly entering into Judas Iscariot. And we believe and teach, and I've made that very clear over the years, If you are saved, if you are a born-again believer in the church age with the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling you, that Satan cannot come into your house, bind the strong man, and take control of you. The Holy Spirit is in you, even when you're carnal, even when you're out of fellowship. You're grieving, quenching, resisting the Holy Spirit. He still lives in you. And so you and I are not vulnerable to uh, possession, as it were. 
And so Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Was he talking to Judas or was he talking to Satan? Okay, both. All right. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Other than John, of course. John was the only one that had the, uh, the, the heads up that, uh, you know, just keep your eye out for who I give the morsel to. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And uh, interesting how John, not only does, he, does Jesus give him a warning, not only does Jesus say, watch this, but then John is equipped to f- observe Satan enter in, right? He has spiritual eyes to see Satan. Nobody else in the room saw Satan except John and Jesus. And he saw Satan enter in. And then somehow he understands what the disciples are thinking, what they're supposing. We typically don't get to hear those kind of thoughts. Some were supposing. All right. Now, this could have actually been written by the Holy Spirit 50 years later. And, and John at the time didn't know what they were supposing. And uh, we can accept that as it is. All right. It ends up here with verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night and it was night. Well, of course it was night. Uh, The significance there is not only was it night physically in uh, Jerusalem uh, in the earthly realm, but it was night as far as the blackness of his soul and and uh, what he's gone out to do. But now notice, unlike Matthew, Mark and Luke, where we have gaps in between episode 20 and episode 21. You see what I'm talking about? That's why I left this slide up here. When you look at episode 20, Judas revealed into facts. When you look at episode 21, Jesus warns about further desertion. For those two episodes, there are gaps of verses in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And you can see that on the screen. The gap in Matthew is 26 through 30. The gap in Mark is 22 through 26. The gap in Luke is 24 through 30. You see what I'm talking about? All right. In John, there is no gap whatsoever. None. And, uh, and I think that's the best way to take this, that these happened immediately. The, the traitor departed and immediately Jesus starts issuing these warnings that you're going to fall away. You're going to betray him. Uh, you're gonna, uh, he's going to betray me, but you're going to fall away. And don't you uh, imitate what he's doing. So as you look here at John 13, and we're not anywhere going to approach this today, but You'll notice after he goes out and it was night in verse 31, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now, now at this moment, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. There's no turning back, right? There's no turning back. The the traitor just left the room. Guards are on their way. Okay. This is the night he's going to be arrested. It's like uh, they strap you into the roller coaster at Disneyland and the thing starts rolling you're on there till the ride's over. Okay? There's no getting off now. They got the thing buckled in. The thing started rolling too late. You're not getting off until the bottom of that roller coaster. And that's where, uh, that's where Jesus is. And in a way, it's a relief. And in a way, it's, it's a thing to rejoice over. And in a way, of course, he's, uh, he's getting ready to start sweating great drops of blood. He's going to go through the anguish of Gethsemane in the uh, volitional battle that he has to fight in prayer. So, I think that the best way to handle this is to put episode 20 and 21 in a, in a very strict sequence, as the Apostle John does, but because John is the one who's giving us the most comprehensive account of this entire night. 
and uh, and that is the uh, the best understanding of it. I'm using the A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels, and uh, you should have this as a handout. If you don't, let me know. Um, I don't know if I have any more up here. We can uh, we can always print some more. Um, but the events of the upper room, you'll notice, uh, the preparation for the Passover was episode 17. It's only recorded, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't cover it. The uh, eating of the Passover, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't record it. Um, foot washing is only recorded by John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't, don't record the foot washing episode. Um, the revealing of Judas and the defection. All four of the Gospels. The warning about further desertion. All four of the Gospels. But the synoptics put that gap in between there. The synoptics put the gap in between there. And for Matthew and Mark, that gap is where they record the the communion information. All right. For Luke, his order is entirely different because he puts communion early. Luke uh, does the Lord's Supper in verses 17 through 20. And then he does the um, revealing of Judas and the defection. And then he does the warning about jealousy. And then he does the uh, warning about further desertion. So Luke's order is very scrambled compared to Matthew and Mark. And uh, like I say, when you, when you put all these together, you've got to put them in a sequence. And this is the one that I think is the most accurate sequence. After the Lord's Supper, then they depart. They sing a hymn and they depart. They go out towards the Mount of Olives. And in between... The upper room in the Mount of Olives is when he speaks to them, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. And uh, we typically call that the upper room discourse, but we will actually see them depart uh, at the end, and and we'll we'll highlight that as well, before he reaches the uh, grief of Gethsemane uh, there in John 18, 1. All right. Any questions on that? Anything not clear? Okay, like I say, hopefully you have your Harmony handout, and uh, if not, um, it's on the website. You can get it at the uh, Life of Christ page on the uh, on the website. So, let's return to Luke and get the details. Luke has the shortest version. Luke has the shortest version. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And here we see the fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. Um, David spoke of this a thousand years ago. And uh, Ahithophel was the type of, of uh, Judas a thousand years ago. Psalm 41.9. You can even say verses 5 through 9 if you want to get the full context of Psalm 41. But the, uh, the um, conspiracy against David was prophetic against the conspiracy against Christ. And David says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Luke 22, 21-23, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. So did this catch uh, the Lord by surprise? No. <laughs> he had many warnings, prophetic and otherwise. Scripture written a thousand years ago. You know, someone that was terrified or someone trying to thwart prophecy, someone uh, trying to hinder this from happening would, uh, you know, probably um, spend the rest of their life never eating with anybody. <laughs> right? Yeah, I will never have a meal with anybody ever again. So that, why? So that I can thwart a prophecy. And, and uh, well, no, that's not what the Lord's about. Okay? 
you know, always, uh, I always laugh every time these movies try to portray time travel and try to portray things where they try to change events by changing something in the past and try to avoid something they know is supposed to happen in the future. As if we can thwart sovereignty, okay? Hollywood does what they do with their movies, but their understanding of time travel is greatly flawed. Now, um, some details here. Luke has the, Point one, Luke has the shortest version. Luke has the shortest version. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Now, he says, For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. The Son of Man is going as it has been determined, as the plan has been established or fixed. Okay, subpoint A. It has been so determined. It has been so determined. Horizo. Horizo. H O R I Z O. Um, not a very common verb, actually, only used eight times. Number 3724 is the Strong's number. But the idea is the idea of boundary, a circle, something that's been enclosed, something that's been um, where limits have been set. Uh, we use an idiom today like drawing a line in the sand or, or fixing a boundary, okay? And that's what, if you think about it, um, if if you've been boxed in, then where are you going to go? Okay. If you if you're in the net, where are you going to go? If you've been encircled, where are you going to go? Okay. That's the idea here. Um, to set limits, to to determine, to fix, to set. In other words, you're within God's boundaries. This is His plan. And, and to me, this is a greatly encouraging concept. It's, it's uh, what we've seen repeatedly throughout Scripture. It's where uh, when Satan wanted to afflict Job, he was allowed to, but only within certain boundaries, only to the point where that line was drawn. And then the very next chapter, okay, the line got drawn, uh, moved a little bit, but it still is a fixed line. It's within the boundaries. It's within the scope. And so we can uh, rejoice that we're in God's sovereign plan. He has set the limits. And that's a tremendous comfort. An absolute tremendous comfort. Um, not only is it used here, you'll notice most of these references are Luke's. Either this one from the Gospel or a bunch of times in the book of Acts. Uh, only once is it found in Paul's epistles and only once in, uh, in Hebrews. But just an assortment of these in the book of Acts, you'll see very clearly the, the, uh, the flavor for this term. It, it means to, to set those boundaries. To provide sovereign limits. And uh, to do so ahead of time. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the horizo, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, don't ever separate God's foreknowledge for what he predetermines. Because God is not stupid. God is not going to predetermine something if in his foreknowledge he realizes that it's at odds with choices that people are going to make. Okay? And so we want to ask ourselves, whose fault is it that Judas was the traitor? Was it God's fault because God predetermined Judas to be the traitor? Was it Judas's fault because of the choices he made? And when you understand that why did God predetermine, well, we see right here, 
connected to predetermined is foreknowledge. So why did God not predetermine Peter to be the traitor? Why didn't he predetermine John to be the traitor? See, well, because when he looked at all the 12, and more than the 12, he looked at every human being on the planet, okay? And when he selected the 11 believers and the one unbeliever, why did he select those 12? Again, his predetermined plan is compatible with his foreknowledge, okay? Middle knowledge, if you study uh, Molinism and, and uh, some of the issues there. Now, de- de- delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And this, uh, this is where we don't fall into the either-or trap. We accept the both-and. God is absolutely sovereign in what he predetermines. But man is absolutely accountable for the choices they make. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and you put them to death. All right. That's Acts 2.23. Acts 10.42. The next use of proorizo, or horizo, I should say. There is a compound of horizo, proorizo, which is to uh, uh, add to the pro prefix on front of it to predestine. Uh, but even to, to determine is intrinsically ahead of time. Anything you determine is going to be ahead of time. You don't have to say determine ahead of time to predetermine. Okay, Anything you determine is going to be ahead of whatever it is you're doing. Um, does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> Acts 10:42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God, determined by God, designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. Nobody else has been so determined. Nobody else has been marked off. Nobody else has been encircled, okay? Designated. Only Jesus is the only one appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. Next chapter, 1129. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each one of them determined. So here's an example where God's not the subject of the verb, it's the disciples. The disciples had to determine to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And so every believer just uh, evaluated what their means were, evaluated what they had available, and they themselves drew the line. They themselves uh, inscribed the circle. They they established the limits. And they said, well, this is what uh, I'm going to contribute to the saints in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Chapter 17 has two uses in verse 26 and verse 31. This is where uh, Paul is teaching uh, to uh, his sermon on Mars Hill. They have this uh, altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, well, what you're ignorant about, I'll let you know about. Okay, you don't know, but you can know. And here's the point. The unknown God. All right. What you worship in ignorance. This I proclaim to you. That word ignorance there, by the way, is the same word as where we get the term agnostic. Okay. Anybody tells you they're an agnostic, just let them know. Well, okay. I appreciate your ignorance, but I can fix that. All right. I appreciate you uh, admitting your ignorance. Let me remedy that. The answer for ignorance is knowledge, and I can make known to you that God is nearby and he's knowable. 
Doesn't he, as the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need food, drink, or anything you want to bring him in your offerings and libations. He doesn't need your money. He himself gives everything. He's the source of all life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. We're all Adamic. We're all Adamic. Every nationality, American, Greek, Egyptian, Ukrainian, whatever, we're all from Adam. Doesn't matter our race, our skin color, nothing. He made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined, and here's our term, their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Nations rise and nations fall, and God's in charge of all of that. National boundaries are uh, part of his plan. That uh, you've got a boundary between one uh, nation and another nation. The establishment of nations at Babylon, the establishment of languages, uh, was a part of his design for the orderly function of the human race. So there it is. God accomplishing the activity there. Comes back again in verse 31, the same term. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That's our term. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is God the Father's eternal testimony that this is the man qualified to judge the living and the dead. All right, those are all of Luke's uses, and I think they make very clear what he means when in Luke 22:21 that uh, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed as it has been determined, as it has been fixed. And it's the Father who determined that, not Judas, not the Pharisees, not the enemies. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The last ones then, Romans 1, 4 and Hebrews 4, 7. Uh, Romans 1, 4 says he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I might want to double check that. That may not be the right reference. And then Hebrews 4, 7. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So he fixes a certain day. He establishes a certain day. He determines the boundaries of what the Sabbath is going to be in the church age. What is the Sabbath for the body of Christ in the dispensation of the church? Today. (laughs) Today. All right. Israel had a Sabbath. It was called Saturday, all right, the seventh day of the week. We have a Sabbath in the royal family of God. And what day is that? It's fixed. It's determined. It's today, day after day, as long as it is called today. We have the opportunity to rest by faith in the plan of God. What a, what a blessing that is. All right. So there's our term, horizo. It has been so determined. However, woe to that man. Woe to that man. God's sovereignty in determining the betrayal does not mitigate, does not excuse, does not change the the woe, the consequences, the volitional consequences to the one who uh, volitionally performed the predicted deed. God's predetermined plan to crucify Christ does not remove culpability from the tool. 
who volitionally performed the predicted deed. Again, the, the sovereignty of God and the volition of man are not in opposition to one another. The sovereignty of God is freely exercised. The sovereignty of God is absolute as the wisdom of God is able to marry sovereignty with volition. He has a full foreknowledge. And if he wanted different decisions, he could have arranged different circumstances. His sovereignty is absolute. Some, uh, some folks are very uh, sad because they think that God's sovereignty is limited. That he just kind of, he's not very sovereign in their mind because they said, well, you know, he just kind of has to go along with whatever it is people choose to do. Not so. Because God knows the conditions that would have impelled or would have resulted in uh, people making different choices. You know, he knew what it would take for Sodom and Gomorrah to make different choices. Right? He said, you know, if these Capernaum miracles, the miracles done in you, Capernaum, if, if these Capernaum miracles would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So he knows what conditions are necessary for people to make different choices. So why did God not give them the Capernaum miracles? Okay. God didn't send, Capernaum, uh, didn't send Sodom and Gomorrah those Capernaum miracles. Not at all. So they didn't, they didn't repent. Again, is God's sovereignty enslaved to human volition? Not at all. Because he has complete control over the conditions that he tests them under. Knowing what their response is going to be. All right. Did I make your head spin too much thinking about that? Okay. Now, so God puts me in circumstance A. And I respond. I either respond in faith with positive volition or I respond without faith and carnality with negative volition. God gave me those circumstances, A, knowing what my response was going to be. Had he given me circumstances B, maybe my response would have been different. Okay. But the point is, who's in charge of putting me in those conditions? He is. That's right. What conditions do I face? How come I, I didn't face conditions B? Am I going to whine and complain and say, but, 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 if, if this would have happened, I would have believed. Okay. It's not an issue. That didn't happen. This happened. And how did I respond? And I'm accountable for how I responded in the conditions I'm placed in. In the conditions I'm placed in. That is absolutely critical. And this is what upholds both sovereignty and free will. Alright, so God's predetermined plan to crucify Christ does not remove culpability from the tool who volitionally performed the predicted deed. God uh, selected Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, but <laughs> the consequences of cursing Israel are you get cursed, right? So Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and then God destroyed Assyria for destroying the northern kingdom of Israel. So they say, well, that's God's fault because God made Assyria destroy Israel. No. Why did God select Assyria to destroy Israel? Because Israel wanted, because Assyria wanted to. Yeah, Assyria was a wicked nation. Assyria was worthy of destruction anyway. And so he selects a, a, a nation that's worthy of destruction anyway and selects them, says, you guys are going to go destroy Israel and establishes the conditions whereby they volitionally go and destroy Israel. And then he destroys them. Understand how that works? 
All right. Anyway, so this is a good a good lesson to uh, to recognize this. Indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God's plan is achieved, but negative volition reaps what it sows. And then they began to discuss among themselves which one of them might it be who was going to do this thing. A group cooperative search began among the twelve. Judas, too, joins up in this. Who do you think it is? <laughs> you imagine Judas, he goes to Thaddeus and says, man, who do you think it's going to be? All right, a group cooperative search. Now, let me ask, how, how fruitful is this? <laughs> a group cooperative search began among the twelve. Let's just have a group discussion about this, shall we? You know, there are whole churches that are all about group discussions and parachurches, non-churches, home studies. Well, what do you think? What, what do you think? What do you think? Okay. When the one with all the answers is right there. Okay. You know, eventually we'll, we'll see how in the gospel of John, the beloved disciple leans back and says, Lord, who is it? Okay which they should have done 45 minutes ago, <laughs> okay? But instead they have this group conversation and then they have this back and forth and then they have this puzzle, well, we can't figure it out. And then the one by one they go and say, it's not me, is it? Right? Now it's interesting, he says, one of you will betray me. To be fair, he doesn't say, one of you already has 30 pieces of silver in his pocket and is going to go out tonight and have me arrested. The disciples might have thought, well, maybe he's talking about next week or next year or 10 years from now. You know, one of you will betray me. Okay, if, I, if I was to prophesy today that 10 years from now, one of you will, um, you know, one of you will be in prison for murder. Okay, that's a terrible thing. Where did that come from? I'm not a prophet, so that's not true, okay? But if I was, if I was, I would say that the people in this room would be curious, concerned, scared, and you would want to come and say, it's not me, is it? Okay? It's not me, is it? Not me, is it? And then I'd say, you've said it yourself. And then you spend the next 10 years trying to thwart the prophecy from happening, okay? That's one of those goofy Hollywood movies I'm talking about. Now, so you can imagine, Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and for 11 of these guys, they're, they're kind of scared. Well, maybe it is me, you know. Could I, could I conceivably do that at some point? Yeah. Um, this group cooperative search began. They uh, began to discuss among themselves. I think you look at the verb tenses here and you start to see that this uh, was something that, did, that took time. I mean, this was a few minutes. This was, you know, they, they probably got up from their their couches they moved around the room they they started asking one another and and uh and so forth so time goes by in the course of this evening but i would put forth that cooperative group searches uh, are not edifying uh as a rule when there is a better provision available when there is a communicator that has been gifted and designed in order to feed a flock uh, when the son of god is sitting right here and you can ask him Okay. When you have a Bible available to get the truth, 
And people just start going to all these other sources besides the Word of God. They start going to earthly wisdom. They start getting all these other things to try to find answers. I think there's a lot we can glean out of Luke 22, 23, but we're going to let that go for now. Point two. Maybe it'll help us to understand some background for the Seder feast. Background for the Seder feast is important in considering this episode. You know, over the years, the traditions on this night had changed. When originally instituted, when originally instituted, uh, this was a very fast meal. They they wolfed it down. They ate it very quickly. They were, they were standing when they ate. They weren't reclining and leaning on somebody's breast and and you know drinking this and drinking that and dipping this in a bitter herb thing and and um, all of these additional elements crept in over the years were added and all these traditions and questions and things of that nature um on this night in the upper room they're not in there you know with their sandals on they're not in there standing up and eating real rapidly and then leaving as originally given in exodus chapter 12 you see that their sandals are off you see that christ washes their feet you see that they're reclining you see that they're drinking multiple cups you see that they're um, they're having a Passover dinner, and then they're eating even more. Okay? Kind of my kind of place, actually. You know? We have dinner, and then after dinner, what do you do? You just keep eating. Okay? Yeah, dinner's over, but there's more. And you can't let any of it stay till morning, so you've got to finish it off that night. All right. The Baker New Testament commentary has uh, a good description on this. If you have a Baker New Testament dictionary, commentary, um, don't look in the... Uh, Luke 22 part, part, or even the John 13 part, this description comes in the John 2.13 portion of the... Whoops. There we go. The Baker New Testament commentary. No, not that. I'm going to change the batteries in my mouse. I can always tell. <laughs> batteries start going weak and my mouse, a single click can be four or five clicks and that's not good. All right. This is the Baker New Testament commentary, uh, Gospel of John volume. Uh, this is a multi-volume commentary set where, anyway, this is the volume from the Gospel of John um, in the passage from John 2.13. The Passover of the Jews was near. Every male Jew from the age of 12 and up was expected to attend the Passover at Jerusalem, a feast celebrated to commemorate the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. On the 10th of the month, Abib, Abib was the older Hebrew name, Nisan was the name that it, they adopted when they came back from Babylon, um, generally corresponds to March, but because it's a lunar calendar, sometimes it can extend into April. Um, anyway, on the 10th of Nisan, a male lamb of the first year without blemish was taken. And this corresponds to the selection of the Passover lamb took place on the 10th. Okay. And this uh, has its parallel in the, uh, the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, humble and riding on a colt, the Palm Monday episode where Jesus enters in on Nisan 10, the Passover lamb is selected and the children of Israel testified the lamb of God, Hosanna to the Lord. All right. So on the 10th of Nisan, 
this lamb would be selected. And then on the 14th day, between 3 and 6 o'clock in the afternoon, it was killed. The elaborate evening celebration of the feast in the days of our Lord's sojourn included the following elements. First of all, a prayer of thanksgiving by the uh, head of the house, drinking the first cup of wine. Okay? And uh, we, we've actually had a demonstration of this in the past. We probably ought to have another one because it's been so many years now. We can bring, uh, bring Arnold Fruchtenbaum in like we did before and have Arnold do this uh, demonstration for us. Actually, we've got a big enough dining room now. We could do a full dinner. Have the whole church come and do a full dinner that night. So the uh, head of the house, okay? This is Tevier in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, all right? The head of the house drinking the first cup of wine. Then other cups are going to be emptied as the feast proceeded. B, the eating of the bitter herbs as a reminder of the bitter slavery in Egypt, okay? And this, uh, for this, when we had it, when uh, they used the, the horseradish, and it's powerful. I'll never forget, B3 was just a five-year-old little kid at the time, and he turned, he turned brighter red than, than, than your sweater there. I mean, it was just a bright, bright red, his face. Unbelievable. All right. Now, as we go through this, it's kind of interesting to think about at which of these steps was Jesus talking about when he said, he who dipped his hand with me. Okay. And in which of these steps was Jesus talking about when he says, I'm going to dip the morsel and give it to him? Some people think that was one of the same event. I think it's two events. I think the first one is where two hands both dipped simultaneously. And then the second one is when Jesus dips and hands the, the dipped morsel to, to Judas. So this eating of the bitter herbs, this could have been the moment where Jesus and Judas both reached their hands in at the same time. Okay. Kind of like at that awkward moment at the party where you both reached into the dip, you know, with your salsa for your chip, right? And and then you bumped hands and and you're all embarrassed. Like, oh, I'm sorry, you go first. Whatever, okay? But see, it happens all the time and who cares, right? But had it happened earlier in the night and then later, half hour later, hour later, he says, one of you will betray me the one who dipped with me in the bowl. Now, 11 of the guys are clueless, but Judas knows. Okay? And I think this is exactly what's going on here. The reason why he said, the one who dipped with me in the bowl is, the, is one of the final opportunities. Um, I think what you do do quickly is the final opportunity, and then he goes. But even before that, the one whom I give the morsel was an opportunity. And even before that, the one whom dipped with me in the bowl. He's got three chances tonight. Judas is going to strike out three times here tonight, okay? And so, in my mind, this is just an awesome thing that, uh, you know, the one who dipped with me in the bowl. Because not only, we've known all along that Jesus knows, okay? Because he said, not all of you are clean. But now, for the first time, Judas himself knows that Jesus knows. He didn't know that before. Okay? So the moment he says, the one that dipped with me in the bowl, Judas knows that Jesus knows. Okay? And Jesus knows that Judas knows that Jesus knows. Right? Follow that? Okay. (laughs) And then he's going to clue in John, and John will know that Jesus knows that Judas knows that Jesus knows. Okay? Yes, ma'am? Uh-huh.
Right. Yeah, there, there could have been a, yes. There, Judas knows he's going to betray because he, he collected the 30 pieces of silver two nights ago. Or on Wednesday night. He collected his fee on Wednesday night. This is now Thursday night. And he fully intends to, but he didn't know where to send the soldiers. He didn't know what, where they were going to have the upper room. And so he still has a chance to, to, to chicken out or change his mind or repent or get saved. Okay? And so I think all of these opportunities, it's like when the Lord goes to Adam in the garden or when the Lord goes to Cain and says, where's your brother? He, this is mercy on the part of the Lord, giving the opportunity to confess and to repent and to, 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 to embrace him. And I think it's a gracious way to do it. The one who dipped with me in the bowl. And you think about it, what could Judas have done at that point? Yeah, he could have pulled out the silver and cast it to the Lord and said, you know, forgive me, I'm, 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 I'm a traitor, right? So that's, that's a good question. I think that's exactly what we're, what we're observing here on this night. And it was not a short night either. Um, after the bitter herbs, uh, see in the Seder outline, uh, the sons inquire, and, and usually it's the oldest son, the firstborn son gets this privilege. He has, a, he has a line in the drama that he has to recite. It's the same every boy does. Why is this night distinguished from all other nights? And then the father has his reply. He either has it memorized and he recites it or he reads it from the, from the scroll. Um, and then D, the singing of the first part of the halal that will sing Psalm 113, Psalm 114. The first part of the halal will be sung and the washing of hands, ceremonial washing of the hands. And then the carving and eating of the lamb, the carving and eating of the lamb together with the unleavened bread. Now there's another episode where there's bread. There's a possibility maybe that might be the morsel that could have been uh, dipped and given. Um, the lamb was eaten in commemoration of what the fathers had been commanded to do in the night when the Lord smote all the firstborn of Egypt and delivered his people. The unleavened bread was a memorial of the first days of the journey during which the bread of haste had been eaten by the ancestors. It was also an emblem of purity. And then there's point F, the continuation of the meal. Each one eating as much as he liked. That's my favorite part. Each one eating as much as he liked, but always the last of the lamb. He had to finish that lamb. Not one bit of that lamb had to be left, could be left by, uh, by morning. And then the singing of the last part of the Hallel. Uh, we're told that the last thing they did was they sang a hymn before they left this upper room. Singing a hymn, they then departed. Singing a hymn, they then departed. And I forget where that reference comes. Uh, I think it's in the Matthew account. All right. Uh, so G, the singing of the last part of the halal, they would sing Psalms 115 through 117. The day on which the lamb was killed was followed by the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, celebrated from the 15th to the 21st of Nisan. And uh, so very close was the connection between the Passover meal proper and the immediately following Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the term Passover is frequently used to cover both. And sometimes the term Passover applies only to that one night. Other times it applies to all eight days, the Passover and then the seven days of the Unleavened Bread. And that's, uh, that's not unusual at all. Okay, so that's the, the Seder feast as it was practiced in Jesus' time and even to today. So that's point two. Background for the Seder feast is important in considering this episode. And I think the best thing it does for us 
is it reminds us of how long this night went. And it reminds us that there was more um, dipping opportunities. There was more morsel opportunities. There was more uh, where it could have been the bitter herbs or it could have been later. Um, It could have been bread. It could have been, and and really the psomion morsel, it's it's just a morsel. It could be meat. It could be bread. It could be... It could be anything, okay? It's just he dipped a morsel. Doesn't say what the morsel was. And so uh, the value of this is, is recognizing that there would have been a significant time that would have passed and, and likely a lot of movement, like I say, a lot of getting up, moving around, leaving the room, going to the bathroom, coming back. I mean, I mean just leaving the room, coming back, talking back and forth. Who do you think he's talking about? Who do you think he's talking about? One by one going over to Jesus. It's not me, is it? It's not me, is it? And then reclining back to the to the thing so John can lean back and say, Lord, who is it? Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark adds a couple of details. Mark 14. Again, going back to the question Susie had a little bit ago, you know, the opportunity that Judas had to change his mind, I think it's like, an unbeliever rejecting the gospel. Maybe he's rejected it a thousand times. But today is another day. And up until even on his deathbed, you know, does he have an opportunity to, to accept Christ? I believe he does. Now, if he's not elect and chosen, he won't. And I know that. But it's still left within his volition to accept or reject. And we understand that. Both are true. Sovereignty and volition. All right, Mark 14, some more of these details. Um, <laughs> i got two minutes left. Wow. To give you points three, four, five, and six. That will obviously happen next week. Um, first of all, we're told, Mark tells us about the grief. Um, Luke didn't say anything about the disciples' grieving reaction. I, I think still on this night, the disciples are in denial. They don't want to believe that he's going to go to the cross tomorrow. Right? He told them on Wednesday night, he said, two days from now, I'm going to die. And then on Thursday night, he says, one of you will betray me. And we're told that this grieves them in Mark 14, 19. They began to be grieved. And we see the emotional response when the truth is communicated. <laughs> one of you will betray me. That's truth spoken by God. And these are believers with one unbeliever, but all 12 of them are grieved. Does the truth ever grieve you? Is it supposed to? Sometimes it is. Particularly when your attitude is not in conformity with God's attitude. And uh, you may not like it, but it's the truth. So the change of thinking is necessary on our part. And even then... It may still grieve us, even though it produces the glory for God and even though it does bear fruit and even though it's necessary. It can still grieve us. All right. So they became grieved. The twelve were grieved over his announcement and one by one denied being the traitor. One by one. They began to say to one another. No, no, to say to him. I'm sorry, to say to him. They spoke to Christ one by one. Surely not I. 
This is the phrasing of a question that demands the negative response. Okay, the phrasing of the question that demands the negative response. There's no other way to answer it when it's when the grammar uh, when the the question is asked with this uh, expression. The no answer is the one that's demanded. Surely not I. Okay, like when the wife says, "You're not watching another football game today, are you?" The phrasing of that question demands the expected answer. <laughs> okay. And so every single one of these, including Judas, you know, who knows it's him, but acting all like, you know, the Lord's not a prophet or something. Okay. How do you lie to a prophet? How do you lie to God? And yet this is the insanity of what he's doing. Okay. Well, it's 1101. We will resume here uh, next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. And some of it does grieve us, Father, and I thank you that it does. I thank you, though, that uh, whether it's popular, it is profitable. And I rejoice that we have a lampstand where believers are eager to have the whole counsel of your word taught, line upon line, precept upon precept, not shrinking from any scripture that is profitable. And I thank you for the example of our Savior. Pray that we will continue to learn these uh, doctrines that we can glean out of the upper room. And, uh, and I pray that uh, none of us, uh, well, of course, we're saved, none of us would ever be a Judas, but I pray that none of us would ever be a Peter either in that regard, denying our Savior and falling away from faith. Father, uh, just continue to teach us that we can continue to be to be the beloved disciple reclining in your bosom. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.